This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 33. Listen to the word of the Lord. They, that is Jesus and his disciples, came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see People, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Then Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Ah, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside And began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, you might have thought it a bit odd that we are combining this text with this healing of the blind man. Now, why on earth would we do that? Why on earth would Mark combine these two texts together? The striking, the really striking thing about this particular healing is that it is the only two-stage healing in the Gospels. You know, it's every other time that Jesus heals someone, they are healed immediately. The healing happens at once. There's no waiting, there's no stages, there's nothing gradual. There's just an immediate healing and liberation for this person. But strangely, in the case of this blind man, it seems like a more awkward and a more difficult healing. It doesn't happen immediately. It doesn't occur all at once. There's this partial halfway experience the blind man has. Jesus spits on his eyes and he asks the man, what do you see? And the man, I mean, he sees something. What he's experienced is certainly better than being in utter darkness. And he peers through the mists, whatever film is covering his eyes, and he sees what he assumes must be people, but they're large and blurry and blobby, and they kind of look like, like trees walking around. I mean, this is a pretty memorable remark, and you can, you know, it must have stuck in the disciples' mind. These people, they kind of look like trees walking around. And he's a bit uncertain and he's a bit blurry. And though certainly his half-healed, half-sighted condition is better than blindness, it's really not that helpful, is it? 
I mean, to walk around in the fog, seeing these blurry shapes, is not going to get this man very far. He cannot recognize individual faces, let alone whether or not this person is a, per- is a person or a tree. He needs full and complete healing. And I'm not going to go into this uh, healing very deeply, except to say that for Mark, it seems to be an acted parable for the disciples and their own blindness. Because for the disciples as well, the healing of their spiritual blindness, the mists and fog that cover their own eyes, is not going to be sudden, and it's not going to be immediate, and it's not going to be all at once. They are going to need a long course of treatment from Jesus. And is it not the same for us and our understanding? When we come to Christ, our eyes are open somewhat, and we recognize Jesus, but there is a lot of blobs, and there are a lot of blurs. And full sight is something that is going to take a long time to achieve. It's still the miraculous power of Jesus. It's just over a long period of time. So here is there's this acted parable, and then Jesus takes the disciples on a journey. They go up to the far north of Israel, the very boundary. It's about 25 miles, a full day's walk from Galilee to Caesarea Philippi. It's the only time this place is mentioned in the New Testament. It's a city built by Herod's son, Philip, in honor of Caesar, Caesar Augustus, the greatest of the Roman emperors. He reigned for 57 years, and there was an impressive marble temple dedicated to the worship of the emperor in this city. And it was also famous for the worship of the Greek god Pan. You know that half-human, half-goat figure? That was the guy. This is a city of, of paganism and the worship of strange gods. And of all the places for Jesus to choose to reveal who he is and what he's come to do, he chooses this pagan city on the very edge of Israel. In this remote place, he asks his disciples this question. Who do people say that I am? Well, boys, tell me, what are the rumors? What are people saying about me? And the disciples give him the polls. Survey says, some people think you're John the Baptist, who had been executed by Herod, but is Jesus perhaps John the Baptist brought back from the dead? Or maybe he's the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament. The only person in the Old Testament who did not die, he was taken directly into heaven. And perhaps the Jews thought he was going to return again as a portent of the end. Or maybe he is one of the prophets. And so the people in the land, the Jews and their leaders, are certainly giving Jesus some very exalted titles. Clearly, Jesus is no ordinary rabbi. And the miracles and works of wonder that he's doing and the impressive authoritative teaching that he's offering puts him at a very high level indeed. Even among the prophets. That is high. But it's not high enough because all these people they're talking about are people who prepare the way. The Baptist, Elijah, the prophets. Jesus, it's going to become clear, is not one of the prophets. He is the one prophesied about. So the disciples have given the report of what the crowds say, but Jesus is not content with just a general 
survey. He asked them, what about you? What about you? And it's very safe, isn't it, to report the poll results, the general opinion about Jesus. If you're in school and you have to write papers, you know, you play it safe. You cite your sources. You say, it is said that you never personally commit your own opinion. But this is what Jesus is demanding from the disciples. What about you? What do you say? And there comes a time when each of us is called to separate himself or herself from the crowd. You can't hide behind your church. You can't hide behind your family. You can't hide behind your mom or your dad or your husband or your wife. Jesus is going to ask each of us, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Jesus has not rushed this moment. There was a time, some time passed, months ago, perhaps even years ago, when he'd summoned the disciples from their boats and from their tax-collecting booths. And he didn't ask them the question then. He didn't say, follow me, but first I have a skill-testing question for you. Who do you say that I am? He had invited them to follow him as disciples without any questions, without any theological tests, without any kind of filter. He just invited them behind him and with him to learn on the journey. But now the time has come. He has given them ample opportunity to see to listen, to reflect, to discuss among themselves, because guess what? Grace gives time. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves often that God does not put. Our gracious God gives people time to encounter Jesus, to experience Jesus, to ask questions, to seek God, to have God reveal himself to them. Grace gives time time. But now, at this point in Mark chapter 8, grace has given enough time, and Jesus is not going to delay this moment any further. And as a disciple, I would have preferred for Jesus to ask this question when the whole story had been neatly wrapped up. When all questions had been answered, it was clear not only who the good guys and the bad guys were, but that the good guys were already victorious, and the bad guys were already defeated, And then I would have liked to have made a decision without any risk. But Jesus is asking them this question in the middle of the story. Notice that he asked the question on the way. And in the chapters following, on the way is going to become a recurring theme. Jesus asked them on the way, who do you say that I am? And Jesus asked this question in the middle of our own way. In the middle of our own lives, we never have the opportunity to encounter Jesus when all questions have been tied up, when all issues have been settled, when all circumstances have been made plain. It's in the middle of our own lives, in awkward situations, with a lot of untied strings, that Jesus comes into our lives and he asks, on the way, what about me? Who do you say that I am? Not only that, Jesus asked this question in the middle of God's story. Not after the crucifixion, not after the resurrection, not after the ascension, and not, as we might wish, after Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. At that time, this question, the opportunity to answer this question in faith, will have passed. It is 
now, at this point in the middle of history, that God comes and asks each one of us, who do you say that Jesus is? And are you willing to commit to Jesus as King and Messiah now, before he has his crown, so that you can be crowned with him on his coronation? See, this is no armchair theology that the disciples are asked to indulge in. It's kind of interesting. We're reading this text after watching that video about our brothers and sisters in Pakistan. And for them, confession of Christ is not an armchair experience. Sitting back in our comfortable leather wingback chair with a cigar in our mouth, reflecting on great theological questions that make no existential demands on us. As the disciples well know, what they confess about Jesus is going to make a huge difference to their lives. And that is what Jesus asks for. Personal faith, personal commitment, personal risk, and personal reward. And Peter, Peter, the Peter we love, boldly steps forward. I mean, I, that, a question that big from Jesus, I would have hesitated to open my mouth as I'm sure the other 11 disciples did. Peter has no hesitation in moments like this. He boldly steps forward and makes this famous confession. Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. No ifs, no doubts, no hemming and hawing. You are the Messiah. And this, the Messiah is this figure foretold in the Old Testament. Literally, Messiah means the smeared one. The Messiah was a person who was smeared with oil on his forehead as a way of God anointing him or consecrating him to a particular task. The smeared one, anointed with oil by God. And this is a person, a figure promised in the Old Testament who would rescue Israel from her enemies and usher in this wonderful era of peace and prosperity in God's land. And this confession of Peter, as Matthew tells us, is a revelation from God. This isn't flesh and blood. This is not human calculation. God the Father has revealed to Peter, has opened his eyes, and given him the light to realize who Jesus is. In the disciples, whom Peter represents, over time, in Jesus' miracles and his healings and his casting out of demons, they have realized that this is God's liberating power through Jesus. You are the Messiah, the Christ. That's the Greek term. And you can imagine at this moment, there is a hush. And they stop in the dusty road, and all the disciples lean forward. Because surely now, Jesus is going to unveil the great plan. How he's going to organize the peasants and lead them in uprising against Rome. And surely Jesus is going to share the secret revelations he's received from God about the flaming meteors that are going to fall from heaven and the massive earthquakes that are going to destroy Rome. Surely Jesus is going to let them in on the secret of how God is going to set up this new utopian society. And hopefully he's going to tell us about the honorable positions that we ourselves are going to receive as his generals and judges and leaders. 
And to their surprise, Jesus' reaction to Peter's confession is this. Don't you dare tell anyone. The NIV says that he warned them. Literally, he rebuked them in advance. Don't you dare tell anyone, I am the Messiah. Now, you would have thought the very first task would have been to recruit followers because there had been many other messiahs that had arisen and they would collect the crowds and the peasants and the masses and organize a mob and march on the Romans. And surely Jesus would now take these 12 disciples and send them out to the 12 main cities of Israel and recruit the crowds and bring them to Jesus. But Jesus does not want this. See, he doesn't deny that he's the messiah. But this term Messiah is so laden with false expectations and wrong ideas that it's actually an unhelpful term for Jesus. Very distracting. Here's what the Psalm of Solomon, not the biblical Song of Solomon, but the Psalms of Solomon, this is a Jewish religious text around this time, said about the Messiah. They prayed that God would raise up a king to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction to smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar. They wanted the mountains to turn red with blood. This is the violent political military messiah they expected. But to their horror, Jesus begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things to be rejected and to be killed. There will be violence, and there is going to be bloodshed, but it's going to be the Messiah's own blood that will be shed. This is how God is going to bring about liberation. And so here we are, halfway through Mark. This is the hinge of the whole gospel. As Jesus unveils the truth about the Messiah's mission, Oh, yes, I am the Messiah, but you deeply misunderstand what Messiah means. My mission is one of pain, loneliness, and death. And so we've turned a corner in Mark's gospel. The first half, the first eight chapters roughly, are all about Christ's power. I mean, hasn't it been exciting over the last few months to go through miracle after miracle, healing of the deaf and the blind, the dead being raised, the storms being stilled, thousands and thousands of people being fed. We see the power of Jesus again and again and again in the first eight chapters. That's part one. But now in part two, we're going to see the weakness of Christ, the weakness of Christ not at all what the disciples would have expected. They thought, we are on the upswing here. It's getting better and better, more glorious, more powerful, more exalted in every chapter, and now we're just going to take off. And Jesus says, no, my power is going to be manifested in weakness and suffering and death. And the key word in what Jesus says is this word, must. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Must. It is necessary. And it's clear later, when we're done reading the gospel, this is a divine necessity. This is God's plan. This must happen. There is no other way. 
It's not a human must. Jesus is not a victim of people. That's clear from the first half. He is clothed with divine power. But Jesus must do this out of obedience to the Father's will. He must. Now, what Jesus does not tell us yet is why he must die. Why? That is a question that cries out for an answer from our text. Why must Jesus die? And Jesus is not ready to answer that question for the disciples yet. But there is a must behind it. And if there is a divine must, then there must be a reason. Jesus' death is not going to be a meaningless, violent crushing of someone's life. There is a divine plan in place. And so Jesus begins to teach them. And clearly what he's bringing is so shocking and so shattering that it's not something that can be covered in a single discussion along the road. He begins to teach them. This is lesson one of many, many, many lessons that he's going to have to walk them through. But Mark tells us Jesus spoke plainly. He spoke boldly and frankly. There were no subtle hints, no confusing parables. He was completely plain and blunt and honest about what he was about. And there had been some dim hints earlier in Mark. There was Jesus saying something about one day the bridegroom will be taken from you. The disciples must have dismissed that or explained it away. There was the death of John the Baptist. That was rather ominous. But now Jesus is speaking with absolute plainness and directness. And these disciples must have been appalled. They must have been absolutely aghast because finally Jesus has been pinned down and confessed as the Messiah. And their hopes that they have hardly dared to believe about Jesus being the liberator of Israel are now trembling on the edge of something great and awesome. And at this very moment of the height of their hope and faith, Jesus kicks the legs out from under them. It must have been shattering for them to hear this, that Jesus' mission is going to be one of suffering, rejection, and death. And the disciples know, as his disciples, they are caught up in this too. And so Peter, our bold friend Peter, grabs Jesus by the arm, propels him away from the group, and begins to rebuke him. Rebuke. That's a really strong word. Jesus rebuked demons. Peter is very angry with Jesus. And he feels that the Messiah must be shaken out of this depression, this black mood that he's in, and set on the proper path of conquest and liberation. And Peter represents, in our story, both the insight and the blindness of the twelve. Because he's partially seen, but he's still half blind. He sees people, but like blobby trees walking around. He is unable to accept Jesus' true mission. And for Peter and for the rest of the disciples, full sight is not going to come until after the resurrection, until Pentecost, really. Oh, Peter understands what Jesus is talking about, all right. He understands And he hates what he's hearing. Surely this cannot be God's way of salvation. We want to see God's mighty right arm revealed. We want to see him smashing sinners and oppressors like a potter's jar. We want to see the heavens open and fire descending, not the way of weakness and suffering and death. And Peter 
pours out his case to Jesus, gripping him by the collar, as it were, urging him, turn from this foolish path and be the kind of Messiah that we are expecting. And Jesus turns and looks at his disciples. I wonder why Jesus did that. Why is his reaction to Peter's rebuke to turn around and to look at the other 11? I believe is that these are the ones for whom Jesus has come to die. Peter, as usual, does not know what he's asking for. He is asking that Jesus abandon his rescue mission. And for Jesus to listen to Peter's urging, to heed Peter's rebuke, would mean Peter's own loss and destruction. The divine must is not because God needs the cross, but because you and I need the cross. That is why Jesus cannot swerve from his path. Obedience to the Father and love for sinners. Even foolish, half-blind sinners who are getting in Jesus' way, he cannot swerve from the path if he is to rescue them. And then Jesus turns and he rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he shouts at him. This is a satanic attack. Peter, the one who had so gloriously and so full of faith confessed Jesus as the Messiah, is now being used by Satan as a stumbling block in Jesus' path, something for Jesus to trip over. There are really three temptations of Christ in Mark. There's Jesus in the wilderness with Satan in Mark chapter 1, Jesus and Peter here in Mark chapter 8, and later, Jesus in Gethsemane. Three times when he is tempted to swerve from the path of obedience to God. And Jesus knew full well what obedience would cost him and what it would mean to degrade himself in weakness and shame to death on the cross. This was a real temptation to Jesus, and it came to him with all the power of satanic suggestion. And Jesus refuses to listen. And he orders Peter, get behind me, Peter. Perhaps this is, get behind me in your proper place as a disciple, in the rear. Follow after me. Don't get in my path trying to trip me up. You are going to lead. You're going to follow where I lead, Peter. And Peter's problem is that he did not have in mind the concerns of God the things of God. Peter was reflecting merely human concerns, the calculations of the flesh, which apply even to what we expect of God and his Savior. Gilbert Bilizikian, there's a good Armenian name, says this, the disciples are determined to find a compliant superman who is endowed with heavenly powers and who will fulfill their own earthly program. How exciting to find someone endowed with incredible supernatural power. Nothing can resist him. And if only we can harness him to our own program, nothing can possibly stop us. And again and again in the Gospels, we find ourselves 
laughing at the disciples, only to realize we're actually laughing at ourselves, aren't we? Because are we not constantly tempted to do the same? To harness Jesus to our own project. To use his power for our own purposes. To employ him to meet our own desires. See, the problem with the disciples and the problem with us is that we're not only half blind to who Jesus is, we're half blind to ourselves and what our own true needs are. Because our real need is far deeper than the disciples perceived and that we ordinarily perceive. I mean, really, what could seem less relevant than the death and resurrection of Jesus from the dead for us? In our day-to-day life, there are a thousand other things that seem more urgent and more pressing. But our real need is far deeper than we imagine because we are enslaved to sin, to Satan, and to death. And we need a mighty liberator. Our need is far greater than economic or political or intellectual. It's a deep spiritual need. And none of those other problems will ever be solved until this one is. It's a great thing to join Peter in confessing that Jesus is the Christ. That's the first confession of the Christian faith. But the second one is just as important, that he came to die for me. We preach Christ and him crucified, Paul said. And so we need Jesus to open our blind or half-blind eyes to recognize who he is and to give us that full sight so that we know and embrace his mission and so that we follow along behind him. Think of those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It was the third day after Jesus had been crucified. And these two disciples meet a stranger in the road and they are depressed because this prophet of God they had expected so much from has been rejected and killed and they are crushed. And then Jesus walks them through the scriptures and explains why the Messiah had to suffer and die. And then they sit down for dinner in their little cottage, and it's as they're breaking the bread together that Jesus is revealed to them. We're going to celebrate communion this afternoon. And our prayer is that, again, in the breaking of the bread together, that the Holy Spirit will give us a truer, a clearer, a deeper realization of who Christ is and what he has come to do for us. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we rejoice that you have sent your Son into the world as our Messiah, as our Savior. And we thank you that the Son of Man came not to seek glory and honor and power for himself, but that he came to suffer many things, to be rejected, to be killed, and to rise again. And in his mighty deeds of weakness is our salvation. And so we pray, God, that as we celebrate Holy Communion together, that this would be a partaking of true faith, not an empty magical ritual, but a true communion with you by the power of your Holy Spirit. 
We worship you, we thank you, and we bless you, O God. Draw near to us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.